Welcome to The Fifth Kind. Barbara Lamb is a licensed psychotherapist whose work in family and child therapy goes back more than 40 years. Her use of regression therapy has led her into some interesting areas of study, including the phenomenon of past life memory and close encounters with extraterrestrial or interdimensional beings. Barbara Lamb, welcome to The Fifth Kind TV. It's a great pleasure having you with us. We're going to have a wonderful and fascinating conversation, and I want to dive <laughs> straight in. So perhaps we could begin. Could you tell us what regression therapy is? How did you get into it, and how do you do it? Oh, well, regression therapy is um, a method of helping a person go into a really nice state of deep relaxation. Now, we can call that relaxed state of consciousness, we can call that hypnosis. So, a person comes in with an issue or a question that they really want to know about, and we talk about that a little bit, and then I have the person lie down, usually on a sofa, and get very nice and comfortable, and then I take, oh, 10 or 15 minutes of just giving the person wonderful suggestions for relaxing more deeply, going into a really deep, open state of consciousness. And we call that state hypnosis. But that's what it is, a very nice state of deep relaxation. And so when the person is sufficiently relaxed, I mention the subject or the question that they have and want to know more about. And I suggest that they are there now at the very beginning of that event or to the beginning of whatever that issue is, that question is. Now, for many years, uh, that regression work took people into previous lifetimes we call them past lives, uh, depending on what their issue was that they came to work on. So that work started for me in 1984, and then I had five years of training by the Association for Past Life Research and Therapies. Wonderful, wonderful training. And then a few years after that, 1991, uh, people started coming to me who had had these very peculiar experiences that they usually remember just a very few moments of at the beginning of an experience. And they knew that something important had happened to them, but usually they didn't know exactly what that was, and they would like to find out about that. So, the wonderful thing is that the subconscious part of our minds um, records absolutely everything that we ever experience, and the subconscious mind records that and holds, retains that information. So that later on, even decades later, um, if we want to know about that experience in this wonderful state of deep relaxation, i.e. 
hypnosis, uh, we can access the subconscious part of the mind, and all of that material will come through to the person. So it's it's really a blessing uh, that we have that function built into us, and also that we have the methods to retrieve that information. So once we have established the subject for the regression, and I have done the deep relaxation, and the person seems to be, oh, very deeply relaxed, totally relaxed, and sort of open in awareness, eyes closed, but with that sense of being open to what's coming next, uh, then I suggest that they are back in time. They are at the year, the time, the place, uh, where that experience began, the experience that they may remember a little bit of if we're talking about the extraterrestrial yeah. encounters, which we are at this point. Uh, so then uh, the person's experience is that he or she goes back to whatever age that was that they've been wondering about when something unusual happened. And they go to the beginning of that experience and have this very clear sense of reliving that experience moment by moment by moment from the very first awareness that something was happening on that occasion right through the whole episode until they are returned back again and the episode is over the first so, time you, i ever saw you in action uh, you were doing a regression session with uh, reuben langdon the oh Hollywood yes stuntman. and yes. i was really impressed by how your technique is and how transparent it is that yes. you simply put him in this state of deep relaxation and then just allowed him to speak and say the things he yes. was seeing, hearing, and feeling. And it, it, it was I was really happy to watch that because I hadn't seen a regression therapy session before, and it seemed a far less spooky, scary thing than I thought it was. He right. was very relaxed, and it oh, was he a was. very simple, simple technique. When you yes. going back to the 1980s, when you were doing regressions with people, and you started hearing memories of other lives, did you already believe in past lives or did your beliefs shift because of what you were hearing from clients? Well, I did not believe in past lives. I didn't think that reincarnation was a reality until about 1981 when I went to Peru for a trip and a few months later, I went to Egypt. And in both of those countries, not thinking about past lives at all, it just happened that in a few places in those countries, that suddenly uh, it seemed like a, a very vibrant memory came up of my having been there and yet been a different person there. And I remembered in some of those spontaneous happenings, um, I remembered an amazing amount 
out of detail of having been there before, even long, long ago, it seemed. And yet I could remember specific details. So this got my attention just from these experiences. And I began to think, wow, maybe we do have multiple lifetimes. Maybe reincarnation is real, although I had not thought so before. So um, I began to think more and more about that. And one of those experiences in Egypt in 1983, I went back to Egypt again, and one of those spontaneous experiences was so grief-stricken. It was just a tragedy that suddenly came up in me, and I had to take a couple of hours by myself afterwards to just process that, to grieve for that, and to go over the details that were coming up moment by moment about that particular lifetime a long time ago when I was a dark-skinned man and I was a slave in Egypt. And it was a very tragic uh, situation. And after that, I thought, you know, I could not have made that up and felt so much grieve and have cried so much about that if it was just my imagination. I just don't think I have imagination that's that vivid and detailed. Mm. So it began to occur to me that, hmm, you know, not only is this real, but uh, I was already a licensed therapist for several years at that time. So I began to think maybe there's a way somehow to use this therapeutically with other people. And then a couple of years went by, and by synchronicity, I happened to meet the woman who had founded the Association for Past Life Research and Therapies. And she knew that I was doing some of this sort of deeper work, but I never called it hypnosis or regression. And she invited me to come to a conference of regression therapists, which I did go to, and I was extremely impressed with the quality of these therapists and also with the work that they were talking about, about their doing regression work to bring forth very important information from people's previous lifetimes and how therapeutic that was. So that organization offered training. This is 1984 we're talking about. And I went to five years of training with them to become a a professional past life regression therapist. So then with my regular counseling clientele, when it seemed appropriate, I was doing past life regressions. And in every case, it was very, very helpful and very enlightening for the client and for myself. And then in 1991, people started coming with the complaint that they had been visited by very unusual beings in the night and were taken away for a while. And they usually were very, very up 
upset, even traumatized by this, and were at a point in life where they'd like to know more, more details about that, and and especially to know if that was really real, those happenings. So that's when I began to do the regression work with people who had had extraterrestrial encounters. So you, I remember you, see, you, you talking about a girl who came to see you, I think it was in 1991. She was from the Uplands uh, District of California. Right. And she had, she'd been living independently, I believe. She was a, a, a mature student, I think. And then she had a series of experiences that so traumatized her. She had moved back in with her mom and dad and was sleeping in their bed. And I think it was yes. her parents who said, honey, I think you need to see Barbara Lamb. <laughs> right. And I think that was the encounter that opened this area up for you. Is that right? Exactly right. Yes, her mother uh, spotted me in a metaphysical bookstore and rec recognized me somehow. I really don't know how. Um, recognized me as a regression therapist. So she enlisted me to work with her daughter, a beautiful young woman, 20, age 21, who was so severely traumatized. And six sessions with her, six different regressions, one in each session. Oh, made all the difference in the world for her to the extent that on the seventh session, she came in and she said, oh, I have come to the conclusion that I am really honored. I am privileged that these beings have chosen me to visit and to work with. And now I am perfectly okay with their coming if they will continue to come. And I'm moving into the wilderness uh, with my boyfriend. And he's okay with it too, because I'm okay with it. So that was yeah. a wonderful, wonderful thing and was the, the beginning of my experiences of working with extraterrestrial encounter people. That would amaze a lot of people. First of all, that's an amazing result for that young lady that yes. she came from a place of such trauma to yep. feeling such confidence that she could live out in the, in the wilderness with her boyfriend. I know. I was but amazed in, and very pleased, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds strange to some people to hear of an abduction experience that this young lady had become comfortable with, come to terms with, because when people talk about alien abductions, the most nightmarish visions come to mind. In yes. the time since, you've counseled probably uh, a couple of thousand of people who've reported these kind of experiences. How More do they compare? 2, are they are they all benign? Are they or are they terrifying and disturbing experiences? There must be quite a spectrum that you hear oh, about. Good for you. There is a spectrum. Um, to begin with, most people who experience this whether it started in their bedroom at night or when they're driving in the car or maybe somewhere else, almost anywhere else in the daytime. Uh, most people have been very scared by these experiences, uh, even in some cases really traumatized, and which I think is very, very understandable. However, um, when these people are regressed, uh, there is, in a sense, 
a, a feeling of relief that they have now that they know. Because for many years, even many decades in some cases, they have wondered about those peculiar experiences that they've remembered just a very few moments of. And, and they've carried that mystery, that unease, that wondering with them usually uh, for the rest of their lives. So when they finally come and do a regression and get the validation that, ah, yes, it really is true and that they certainly obviously lived through the experiences, um, there's a certain this sense of relief that they feel. In other words, whatever was sort of buried in the subconscious part of their mind is now known to them consciously. And that means that they can work with it, um, adjust to it, integrate it into their whole lifetime their, and their personality. Um, it's, it's much more available to sort of work with. And most people having found out that they have had one of those experiences or maybe more, usually more, uh, then they usually become extremely interested in the extraterrestrial reality. And they find themselves going to a lot of conferences, UFO conferences, and looking up these things on YouTube and reading books about it and informing themselves much more about this ET abduction phenomenon. And that helps them too. So they, they develop sort of a cognitive understanding about it as well as their own experiential emotional reaction to it. So I have found that with these well more than 2,000 people um, that they seem to, once they really know some of what's been happening in that regard, they seem to, to do really quite or very well in life. It, it really is a help to bring this to, forth to the, sub, I, to the conscious I mind. Really, I'd love to come back to that question of integration that you raised there and the impact on, on life. But uh, before we go to that, I wanted to come back to a point you made earlier because uh, I had an experience 20 years old that I wasn't sure what it was. And I didn't oh. really have a framework to describe it. I just right. momentarily saw five entities in my oh. flat in Bath and they were oh, they yes. were short beings they had dark eyes I didn't know what I was looking at it was right. frightening yes. and then that's all that I remember and because yes. I couldn't really remember what happened next I assumed I fell asleep and because I couldn't really process it it's something I've sort of not thought about for quite some time and is, yes. it, is it that kind of vague experience that people come to you with and then you're able to retrieve more detail? Oh, yes. Thank you for giving your own example of, of that, too. I appreciate it. Uh, yes, most people um, just remember the first few moments of beings 
being there and not understanding it. And then you see the beings have a way of what we call switching us off. And if you happen to be with somebody else, for instance, somebody else in your bed at night when these beings come, or somebody else in the car with you, or wherever you are when this begins, um, that other person is very deeply switched off. In other words, there'd be no way you could possibly awaken or get the attention of that other person. So it seems like the companion is switched off first. While the person might be aware of beings being there or a light coming in from the window if they were in their bedroom at night or a light following the car if if they're driving along at night or even in the daytime. And um, so the companion is usually switched off out of consciousness, not harmed in any way, and that's important, but just made to be not conscious. And then the person who's going to have the experience uh, is aware of just a tiny bit, just two or three moments of whatever is happening, and then they too are switched off or made to be out of consciousness. And that's why they don't remember Mm. what happened. Now, occasionally, I meet someone who says, oh, I just have this image of being on a whole different environment. It seems like a ship of some sort. And and I have the image of, of my being on the table and something doing something to me my head or some unusual beings standing around me. They might not remember the beginning of the experience, but they have a little flashback of one or two or three of the moments of the experience. Uh, And that has been something that stays in the memory and recurs in their awareness, you know, from time to time. And eventually they will want to really find out more about that. Where did that flashback come from? You know, was that something I really experienced? Yeah, so uh, what, what you're saying is very typical of this type of experience. In the flashbacks that um, 2,000 plus people have shared with you, do you find there's a lot of correlation, a lot of details that repeat? And the reason I ask that is that I know John Mack, who was the uh, head of clinical psychology for Harvard, tasked he by w- the Department of Defense to uh, research uh, military personnel uh, who had experienced close encounters, abductions, etc. And he used a regression technique. I think he used a form of controlled conscious breathing, got the people very relaxed, asked them to describe what they were seeing. And then it was these correlations of all sorts of secondary details that started telling him they've experienced something real. Has yes. that been your experience too, that there are these patterns that emerge? emerge? Yes. And by the way, John Mack and I were really good friends. Um, and I had the great honor in 2004 of guiding him around to various crop circles in England. Uh, And that was July and August of 2004. And then uh, 
you know, a couple months, well, a month or so later, he had that accident back in England and, and was run over and killed. Uh, and I have heard from him uh, two or three times after he departed this plane. Uh, so it's wonderful. So we really understood each other's work and had lots and lots of discussions about that. Yeah, so I think that in many ways, my work was very, very similar to his. And I was already doing this work out here on the West Coast of the United States, and he was doing it on the East Coast. Uh, but so it's just wonderful that life brought us together a number of times to have long discussions about this. What, what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful contributor he was, and Absolutely. a wonderful, wonderful man. Yes. And a man of great courage. Yes. Yes, he had difficulties with Harvard University. Even though he was the head of the psychiatry department at Harvard Medical School. Uh, so that's a very esteemed position. But once Harvard Absolutely. realized that he was doing work with people to recover their experiences with extraterrestrials, they just couldn't handle that and and wanted him to leave the university because of that. In other every other respect, he was highly valued and respected. Uh, but anyway, um, a number of us, including the wonderful lawyer Daniel Sheehan, um, and I and various others, uh, we wrote letters. We went to uh, length to support him, and then he finally was accepted back into his job at Harvard and was able to continue his work until that fatal accident. It's it's an amazing story. And thank you for being part of that story, Barbara. It's mm. it, I think it's a story that really should give courage to anybody in this field of research. He was a real yes. pioneer. I want and, to go and, back to what well, sorry. I was going to say, and to give courage to other people who happen to know of his work and read of his work. Because, you see, Definitely. I think there are millions of people in the United States alone and more millions of people worldwide who have been having these encounter experiences and they probably know just a little bit about it and certainly wonder about it maybe are quite troubled about it and and then if they hear that this very esteemed man a, a psychiatrist himself and the head of psychiatric department at Harvard i mean those are really good credentials and if they Absolutely. know that that he has taken this seriously he has very devotedly worked to help people who have these experiences that must be very reassuring to them to all of these people who know about that i think that's absolutely right and certainly in the time since i put my book out escaping from eden i'm contacted every week by people who've had these kinds of experiences, and sometimes they haven't spoken about it for decades. Mm. They've told nobody other than their spouse or the person right. they were with when they had the experience, but decades later, they still need to process it. And a yes. question I wanted to ask you is, some of the people who contact me 
needing to process what they've experienced, find it challenging to really commit to um, the mundanities of everyday life when they've <laughs> had an experience that's dislodged them from the mainstream yes. and sort of put them in a different universe. What would be your advice to people who are struggling with that? How do we integrate it? How do we live our lives on this planet with a different body of knowledge to our neighbors? Well, I think, first of all, it's important for those people to not despair because the people around them, even their own families, uh, very, very often just don't think they could possibly be telling the truth and, and don't even want anything to do with it. So, a person who's having these experiences could possibly not know anybody personally, uh, who would understand. And that's one of the great difficulties with this, that uh, very often they feel very alone in, in this. So, I encourage people to find other resources, uh, like to, for instance, be aware of the UFO conferences, and especially uh, the part of the conferences where there are offered what we call experiencer support groups. And at these conferences, uh, there's usually one group every day for maybe an hour or so, led by a therapist who does this type of work, like myself, um, and and to be in that room with other people who experience this sort of thing, and they will have questions too, and the informed person leading the group can really be very helpful in giving responses and giving answers. Another resource would be for one of these people you're referring to, to uh, look on YouTube and to find, well, as you did, apparently, uh, find interviews or filmings about people who have had these experiences or, as in your case, finding me, um, people who conduct this kind of regression work so that they can feel more normal, that they're not alone. It's an awful feeling to think that you're alone in something so peculiar and you just have no one to turn to, that that is very distressing for people. But there really are resources and there are lots of books now available about this phenomenon. <clears throat> so people can access those on Amazon.com or bookstores or any number of places. Uh, so, you know, the, again, in reading these books about other people's accountings, uh, they don't feel so alone or or so uh, peculiar. You see, yeah. a lot of people who experience this and don't have somebody to talk to, they really wonder about themselves. They can easily wonder about their own sanity, about their own normality. And so that adds, of course, greatly to the distress. So if they can find others, even vicariously through reading or YouTube or whatever, um, others who have these experiences and others who work with this, oh, it's very, very 
relieving and reassuring for them. So I, are, I encourage people to really look for these resources. Definitely. I think the existence of these groups is is fabulous. It's really important. There are a few groups like that around Australia. There's a group mm. I know in Sydney that provides that kind of support. And through that oh. group, something I've heard a couple of times is contactees or experiences reporting that after an encounter, they experience heightened cognitive abilities. And it's something that they would mention only to very few people because they don't want to suddenly become some kind of case study to be prodded and probed. But I have heard that a couple of times, different heightened abilities. Is that a story you've heard? Many, many times, yes. You see, what happens, and we find out in some of the regressions, is that the people who are taken for these encounters uh, find that on board the the ship, the UFO, <laughs> that there are certain beings who teach them psychic skills. So they come back from these experiences uh, <clears throat> learning how to do telepathy and know what other people are thinking and even to communicate tel- telepathically if they can find somebody else who can pick up their thoughts. Uh, they're also taught a whole range of psychic skills. And very often, too, they're taught the ability to physically heal other people and come back with healing skills. Uh, So, yes, they do get expanded cognitively. Now, I don't think that that happens to absolutely everyone who is taken for these encounters, but it certainly has happened to a lot of people whom I have worked with. Now, some people listening to this, this will be totally at odds with uh, anything they've ever thought about alien abduction. Barbara, you're making this sound ever so nice. But isn't abduction something terrifying? Why are extraterrestrials abducting human beings? What's their agenda? And I'm presuming that if there is a, a, a range of ET demographics interacting with us, there might actually be a range of different agendas <laughs> to explain why this is happening. Right, you are. Uh, first of all, from all of this work and other people's work too, it certainly appears that there is quite a large number of different species of extraterrestrial beings, presumably from various planets and parts of the cosmos uh, who are able to come here. There probably are countless other beings on some of the planets who do not, not come here. But we do know from all of these reports put together that there are, oh, probably 90 or so, maybe more uh, different extraterrestrial species who come here. So each one of these species has their own agenda. So it's very difficult to make an overall statement about that. But I will say that some of the beings, the extraterrestrials who come here and take people for experiences, some of them seem to be more what we call self-serving. 
Uh, they may be more scientifically oriented. They might be wanting to scientifically know about our biology and also about our emotionality, about our reactions. In other words, they're more intent on studying us. And these are some of the beings that uh, people object to be taken to be with because often they will do medical exams and do poking and probing and searching around our bodies and for various reasons. And of course, people are not at all comfortable with that, and I certainly can understand that. Um, but then there are many other beings who come for other reasons and do many other things. Some of them may do physical processes, but they certainly are healing the person whom they have brought for this experience. I have many, many instances in the work that I have done, uh, many instances of people being put on a kind of a cold, hard, which seems like a medical table. That part's not fun. But they notice that as, as the experience continues, that the beings are healing them of some condition physically that they have. And in some of the examinations, the beings are finding functioning in the person's body that are not going well. And once they find that out, then they go about the process of healing the person. And that's done with a whole variety of means, according to the regressions. But usually, it involves some kind of application of light, healing with light in various ways with different kinds of apparatus. And they even have said uh, to some of my clients that examinations that they do, which we like the least, such as what people refer to as the rectal probe, um, nobody likes to have that done here or there, but the beings have told some of my clients that by doing that particular exam, the rectal probe, that they can tell more about all of the systems of the body of that person than they could do with a whole range of other tests put together. So, they do that, or sometimes they'll do examinations without the rectal probe, but it always seems to amount to the fact that if they detect something functioning incorrectly in the person's body, they will either tell the person about that malady and recommend that they go and have that checked out by their doctors at home, or more likely, they will go ahead and do their healing work to take care of that right then and there on the ship. So, uh, it, it, there's a good thing to it, even though uh, people don't like that. I met uh, some people who have stories of that kind of healing interaction yeah. with other species through their family history. 
I must say, my route into this whole area has been through studying, has been through world studying mythologies. world mythologies. <laughs> one of the themes that repeats most frequently when we read the ancient ancestral narratives is the idea that other species are abducting human beings in order to hybridize with us. And oh, yes. I know you've, you've heard report of this kind of thing. What is that all about? Why would other species possibly want to hybridize with us? Oh, such a great question. A lot of that has come up in the work that I've done starting back in the very, very early 1990s. And for, I would say, the first 15 years or so um, of my work in this regard, um, the hybrids that I knew about were hybrids who were living on board the ships. They were not able to live here on Earth because they were not human enough in components. And so they had to live with the other beings, either on the ships or in some cases on the other planets where those beings came from. And having done a lot of that work in those first 15 years or so that I was doing this, uh, sometimes the, high, uh, the extraterrestrials during a regression would give reasons for why they were creating the hybrids. Um, all in all, there were about 15 reasons uh, that were given to my clients on different occasions from these extraterrestrial beings. And they really made sense, at least to me. Uh, the main reason that happened the most frequently is that th those species of extraterrestrials who were creating hybrids they had come to a point where they realized that their species was having very great difficulty in reproducing the next generation. So, therefore, their civilization of beings was in the process of slowly dying out. And they mm. wanted to rescue their species. So, they realized that they had to combine with some other kind of species in order to survive. Another species that would be doing pretty well, like human beings on the whole are doing pretty well. So by that time they had discovered planet Earth and the human civilization, and they had gotten to, from afar, uh, know a lot about humans. And they liked some of our characteristics to blend with for themselves. They liked the fact, and they were very puzzled by it as well, the fact of our emotions. Because most of those species are very low in the component of emotion or have no emotional reactions at all. They're just not constructed that way. And they have noticed that humans have a whole variety of emotions and that it makes life very interesting, very colorful, and even very creative. They respect, many of them, that we humans have a whole panoply of artistic expressions that we engage in 
all of the arts and music and so forth, and that life is very stimulating and very interesting for us humans compared to theirs, which is in many cases much more matter-of-fact and not emotional. So that's one of the features. Also, many of the beings have a much more frail, slim um, body form and uh, a weaker body form, very, very astute and developmentally, but with sort of smaller, slimmer, weaker bodies. So one of the things about humans that they like and want to combine with is is our more robust physical bodies, whether we're heavier or slimmer or whatever. We just have stronger physical constitutions. So many of these beings think that it would be a great advantage to create these hybrids, which are partly their race and partly ours. One of the reasons given, and I love this reason, Uh, given for the hybridization is that some of these species would like to create beings who are part them and part us in order to be ambassadors able to go to their planets and their civilizations because of the extraterrestrial component in them, and also human enough to come to our planet and bring news about that other civilization. Uh, so I, I like that idea uh, very much. And but, but basically, a lot of it goes back to the fact, different species have said this again and again, that they are trying to save their species before they die out. And that's why they do the hybrid program. Now, what we're talking about here is the hybrids, half them, half us, who will continue to live on the ship because they're not human enough to pass for humans here and probably not human enough to withstand our viruses and our bacteria here. Now, there's another whole category of hybrids, and this is what I have written, co-written a book about, which I will hold up for the moment, called Meet the Hybrids, co-authored with Miguel Mendonca. So, the title is Meet the Hybrids, the Lives and Missions of E.T. Ambassadors on Earth. And that means that these are human beings who were born here of a regular mother and father, but before birth, they had been given extraterrestrial genetics, usually more than just one species of extraterrestrial, sometimes four, five, or six, or seven different kinds of extraterrestrial genetics all given at once. So, they are hybridized, but they grow up in their mother's wombs and then are given birth the normal way into a family and grow up in a family as a human being. And they are mostly human, and they certainly are accepted 
uh, for human beings, but because of the extraterrestrial genetics that they have from before birth, and I can explain that if you wish to, but anyway, because of those genetics, they, um, from their earliest awarenesses, uh, feel somehow different than their family and different from anybody else they know. And they have, from the earliest awarenesses, they have a whole range of developed psychic skills. And they have the ability to physically heal people or heal animals. And they also have a lot of awareness that, in many cases, they say, I just know that I'm not really from here, that my home mm. is really out there. My real family, real, real, real family is out there somehow. They, they don't understand it, but that's what they feel. And from their earliest awarenesses, they're having regular visits by these extraterrestrial beings who have given them their genetics. And so Let me just pause you there because there are two interesting elements to this because there's the element of the mother's experience of women when they are pregnant having what they believe are very vivid dreams sometimes but maybe a sequence of abduction experiences during the pregnancy. Yes. So they carry that memory. And then a child grows up who has these special abilities, uh, these affinities, this sense of being from somewhere else, and they may be able to develop those things. Yes. And I guess this relates to a question of, is there, is there something about particular family lines that attracts the interest of uh, ET neighbors to become involved in this way? Because very often there seem to be encounters in this generation, then this generation, then this generation. And the yes. phenomenon you're describing here sounds like it's a part of that. Oh, yes. And, you know, I, I just want to say I'm impressed, impressed, Paul, with all that you know about this. It's, it's a delight. Anyway, you've really become very aware. Uh, so many of the species like to follow a genetic line in the human species. So there'll be a grandparent and then uh, the next generation who might be our parent and then our generation and then our children who may be grown children and then their children who are our grandchildren. And we don't know how long this will continue, but presumably it will. So that's one genetic line within one family. And some of the species do really find that very important to follow those people through that genetic line. I think that some of the other beings are not following that line. And so occasionally you get what seems like um, a random person who is taken for these encounters and maybe nobody else in the family is having these experiences. It's hard to be crystal clear about this because sometimes a person might go for decades not knowing that somebody else in the family line has been having these experiences as oh. well. That is so, very true. I've, I've spoken to people 
who have had their encounter while in military service and they've come home not knowing if they can tell anyone about it. And yes. only when they finally tell their parents, look, something happened to me while I was in Iraq or whatever it is. And then finally the mother will say, all right, John, there's oh. something I need to tell you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely right. And sometimes, you see, the rest of the people in the family really literally don't know that these experiences have, have happened to them. But what, what you point out is so true that there can very, very often be family members who really have had something peculiar like this happen. But again, they probably only remember a very few moments of that, and they haven't known what context to put that in. They haven't known what that meant. And so they've never mentioned it, or maybe they're embarrassed to, or maybe they have mentioned it and they were told, oh, it's just a dream or it's just your imagination. That happens a lot. So, uh, you know, very often these family members do not come forward to each other and talk about these experiences. Now, another thing that's very interesting about this is that some people begin to wonder if they've had these experiences, or even in some cases, they have a strong sense that somehow they might have had these experiences because at some point they had a very vivid sighting of a UFO. And sometimes they've been with somebody else in the car or on the walk or looking out the window or wherever they are when they've had this sighting. And again and again, I'm finding in these regressions that when somebody has a very, very vivid UFO sighting, especially one that's fairly close, within a few hundred feet, rather than a little dot way up in the sky, but when when one person is accompanied by somebody else and they have this close sighting and one of those persons the one who ultimately comes to me, um, has looked into it later in regression that because there's something about it that just keeps plaguing the person mm. for decades often. And they'll finally think, boy, I really want to know about that. And when they talk to the other person who was with them, the other person doesn't know anything about it except that they had the sighting because the other person was, as I've mentioned before, was switched off. In other words, not harmed in any way, but just made to be completely unconscious during the rest of that experience. So they really don't know that the rest of the experience happened. And I've spoken I find, to... Go on. I, I find, sorry, I found again and again that when there's a situation like this, when two or more people have had this close sighting and one of them has actually had the personal encounter experience, uh, that when they bring it up later, and again, sometimes this is 10 or 20 or 30 years later to that person who had been there accompanying them at the time, that the other person very often doesn't even remember the sighting 
about the UFO. One of this just came to my awareness two days ago. Another one of these happenings where the the man I was talking to uh, had had the experience and he recently saw somebody who, when they were teenagers, had had a close sighting. My friend had had the actual experience of being taken away. The other one wasn't. But the other one didn't even remember the sighting. And yet it was a very vivid, impressionable experience. So I've that spoken to a, lot too. a number of people who have experienced things together like that. Two friends, they have a close encounter with a craft or a being. Decades later, one of them has changed their life and they talk to the other person about it. And the other person will remember everything the same, but they will say, look, it's just something I don't want to think about. Yes. Uh, so that, that brings me to the question too. of, how can you help people? How does your work in therapy with people help people to process the things that have happened to them? Well, first of all, Paul, the person has to want to do it and has to find me somehow and and seek me out, call me, email me, and make an appointment, and and in most cases will actually come to where I am in San Diego or arrange a Skype regression. That's we do that too sometimes. So in other words, they have to take the initiative because they are ready to do it. I would never ever want to push this on somebody. You know, even somebody who has a lot of clues that they've been having these experiences, if if they're not ready, it's just not fair, it's not okay for me to urge them to look into it. They They really need to initiate that and be ready to do it. Yes, absolutely. So I can and, just encourage people to think about it if they're wondering for themselves and just ask themselves sincerely, you know, would would I really want to go through the effort? Would I really want to find out? I don't know what I would find out. Am I willing to take that chance? And And it really is totally up to them. I think for some, there's... Tremendous relief, first of all, in being able to talk about something they've experienced where they might oh. have no one else in their life to talk to about it. Others have experienced exactly the same thing, that it's not so strange, you're one of many. And then to have some kind of understanding of what happened, because I think one of the hardest things yes. is if you've experienced something, you can't understand and so to have someone to coach you through that, I think, can be really powerful. Yes. Yes, exactly. I, I think so, too. And I'm very grateful that there is this kind of help available. Definitely. Now, on a slightly different tack, you mentioned earlier on 90 species that uh, you believe are interacting with humanity. That's what you've come to believe through your experiences with clients. That must be quite a spectrum, Ken, and <laughs> ranging from short to tall, nasty to nice. Can you talk to us a little bit about who the beings are that are bumping up against us and <laughs> what they're like? 
Yes, well, I'll, I'll of course just choose a few or, or several. Um, many people have experiences with beings who look very, very human. They look like very, well, what we would consider very attractive humans. Um, many of them look like they might be Scandinavian humans uh, with uh, often blonde hair and uh, sometimes blue eyes and very often it's long hair that comes down to the shoulders or so for males and females. And uh, they have very, from a human point of view, very attractive facial features and they have bodies that look like good, healthy, strong bodies, attractive. And uh, so some of those beings seem to come from the Pleiadian planets. There's a whole group of Pleiadian planets. And um, they may come from other planets as well. Uh, so people feel more comfortable, of course, with those beings because they're more familiar. Uh, then there are beings who look fairly human, except that their skin uh, might be a beautiful blue, and I mean uh, almost a royal blue, like the blue Arcturian beings. And those beings certainly look like tall, uh, regal, somewhat slim beings. They don't have hair, so they have lovely bald heads, and they have eyes that are bigger than ours. Uh, they are not exactly like the little gray beings with the big black eyes, almond shape, kind of on a slant, but they may have um, eyes that have much, much larger black pupils, but some white in them, but their facial features very often look like uh, the facial features of a slim, uh, nicely featured human being. And uh, they, the blue Arcturian beings I'm referring to, are very, very kindly and are some of the many species whom people describe as being unconditionally loving. Many, many of the beings are described that way. And then there are tall, white Zeta beings. These are not like the little Zeta reticuli. Uh, but they're very tall, very slim, um, again, no hair, uh, very, very small fa facial features, big eyes, uh, very white skin, and often they wear long white robes of some sort, and they seem to be uh, very kindly beings. And then we have the mantis beings. Uh, they are really, I have come to respect as being absolutely wonderful, very wise, and they don't look like they would be loving, but a lot of my clients have experienced encounters with these mantis beings and describe that after a while with them, they realize that these beings are unconditionally loving, kind, gentle, even playful, according to a couple of my clients. Uh, so they are seven feet tall, sometimes eight feet tall, or even taller, and they look like the form of a big praying mantis. 
So when a person first sees them, they would never have the impression that this is a wonderful being and an unconditionally loving being. But as they get to have more experience with them and get accustomed to the way that they look, uh, they do find that they are really very fine, excellent loving beings. And of course, we have the little gray zeta reticuli beings that most people probably associate with this whole phenomenon. And even then, with the gray beings, there seems to be a variety of different types. Uh, Some of them seem to be more robotic type. Maybe they're actually androids, you know, part extraterrestrial living beings part robotic Uh, Mm. we don't know that's just the impression that some people have who experience them Uh, some of them seem to be more living beings uh, and they all seem the little gray ones uh, tend to seem to have no emotion at all and that disturbs people because we're used to facial expressions aren't we on each other and head nods like we're doing right now and responsiveness showing in our faces and our bodies and our gestures and our movements but these little beings just don't show that so that's a bit disconcerting for people and do that's all these of, sorry do all these entities get on with each other Or is there some conflict uh, among the community of visitors that we have? Well, there are a lot of reports of one species of extraterrestrial in space having conflicts, even wars, uh, with other species. And then there are reports, too, of um, a large galactic federation made up of many, many dozens of species of extraterrestrials, different kinds of beings from different locations in space. So those many beings get along well. And this federation is a bit, as far as I can see, a bit like our United Nations made up of quite a number of different nations. Not all of the nations here in the United Nations and not all of the planets in the Galactic Federation, but a large number of those societies on different planets do convene and do discuss peacefully uh, matters that concern them all and issues between them and find very decent ways to work things out. Now, these... Carry on. These beings in the Galactic Federation, or some of the members who have created the hybrids living on Earth and are part of the Federation, they have said that one of the reasons why they create the hybrids living on Earth is to help to upgrade the consciousness of humanity and to serve humanity to help us evolve uh, so that we can eventually be part of 
the Great Galactic Federation. Right now, you see, there's no way that Earth could be part of that federation because of all the wars, the greed, the unfair uh, competitions, the unfairness that goes on, uh, the murders, the killing of people, the riots, the destruction. You know, we are far from qualifying being a member of that federation. And that's one of the reasons why they send the hybrids to see how much they can possibly influence, help to upgrade humanity so that we can change our ways. So much for saying that because that really answers the question I was about to ask, which is, I remember Dr. Ed Mitchell uh, was passionate about the human race taking yes. its place in this community of spacefaring civilizations. And what you're yes. saying is, we're not quite there yet. We're not no, quite ready yet. We but certainly are not. work is being done to help yes. us to be ready at some future point. Yes. Yeah, I think there, there is some hope. Uh, because there are these hybrids. I know of about 16 of them, but I'm sure there are many more who are living in different parts of the earth and doing their part. And then uh, we hear about a lot of star children. You know, these may be young children now, but they have special connections with the benevolent beings, and they are messengers uh, for the benevolent beings, and they are here to help create a lot of good on the earth, and hopefully they will be able to grow up and, and do that. So, it's there's a bit of this happening. I think every bit of it really counts, but we, we really do have major things going on on the earth now that um, are running quite opposite uh, to this benevolent agenda. So it is quite a challenge. Barbara, when you see all the interest that uh, extraterrestrial and maybe interdimensional neighbors have in human beings, and there really does seem to be something very unique and special about human beings that interests our neighbors, has that does that make you regard human beings differently? Do you regard our, our potential differently because of all the things you've learned? Yes, yes, I think so. Uh, for one thing, I am, I'm very uh, inspired by uh, the people who have had benevolent contacts with these benevolent beings and really seem to be growing in consciousness of uh, uh, and many many people aside from that too are developing more of a cosmic interest a cosmic consciousness which includes at least the possibility that there are these other lives in space and i'm impressed with groups like seti you know really and Shostak, for instance, um, you know, urgently, year by year by year, looking for signals, for radio signals, for signs that there is other life in the cosmos. I, I think that this is growing exponentially. Um, scientists' interest and in explorations and just 
awareness on the part of the general public worldwide about the cosmos and about the idea that, at least in many people's minds, that maybe we're not alone. Maybe there really are others. And um, and then, of course, there are the millions of people in the United States alone, plus many more millions worth worldwide, uh, who know that there are other beings be- because they are actually having personal encounters with them. So I think this consciousness within humanity is growing, and I think that's a very good thing. The one thing that I am very concerned about, however, is that the more that information is coming out to the general public, as it is now, about these unknown aerial phenomenon, unknown UFOs, uh, the more this is really coming out in the mainstream news, uh, it seems to be sort of promoted with the idea that oh, since there are these objects coming close to Earth, that we need to protect ourselves. We need to arm ourselves massively to fight them off if need be. And that distresses me because there are so many beings who come in these crafts and who are totally benevolent and who want very strongly to help humanity. And frankly, I think we really need their help. Yes. So I don't, I don't like the emphasis on protecting ourselves, defending ourselves militarily against them. And there has been never any indication at all that any of these crafts that have been seen and even those who have landed or crashed here on Earth, that they have tried to do anything destructive. And even no, a number of years... We've fired on them. We've yes, fired on we, them. Yes, we have. I don't think they've fired on us. No. And when there was a big group of... Uh, in, in two places, over the U.S. Capitol decades ago, and also over Los Angeles. I think that was 1952, if I'm remembering correctly. Anyway, there was a whole fleet of UFOs in both of those instances that flew over major urban locations, just even in our country that we know about. And they were, the ones in Los Angeles was called the Battle of L.A., because we had all kinds of weaponry firing at them. They were not firing at us. And they remained over Los Angeles for several hours, never firing on us or indicating in any way that they were a threat to us. And yet we, in typical human emotional ways, uh, went ahead and did what we could to to bring them down, shoot them out of the sky. I well, believe this... that one did get actually hit and uh, did come down, but I think the rest of them escaped that. But that's our attitude. Yes. You see, well, and, this is and, what and I, that's really a this shame. This is what I really value about your contribution, Barbara, because so often when people think about 
ETs, they think in terms of invasion of the body snatchers, Independence oh. Day, Mars attacks, they have this terrible apocalyptic vision. And what you're bringing to us shows us that there are whole other layers to this story and we need yes. to get a little bit more intelligent with yes. how we engage with the bigger reality that's all around us. Yes. We could talk for hours. I'd love to keep going much longer, but we may need to pause shortly on this conversation at least. So can I ask you, people watching this will want to get more Barbara Lamb. Point us to some of your writings where people can learn a little bit more about your work. Okay, well, uh, there are the books, first of all. There's the Meet the Hybrids book, available readily on Amazon or from me personally. And then there is a very helpful book called Alien Experiences, and this has 25 cases from my work of different kinds of ET encounters that people have had with extraterrestrial beings. And then there is also, I think, of great interest, uh, my first book called Crop Circles Revealed. This is all about the crop circle phenomenon. And I think that's very closely connected with extraterrestrial beings. I personally, after 30 years of investigating that phenomenon, 27 years personally in England, um, I do think that the creation of these crop circles is from coming from an intelligence out in space. There are people who could disagree with that, but uh, that is what I conclude from so many years of researching them personally. Uh, so th those are ways people can get in touch with me. Unfortunately, my website happens to be out of commission at the current time, but people can email me if they would like to. I am in Southern California. Uh, my email address is barbara.lamb, L-A-M-B, dot therapist at gmail.com. So we'll put all those links up, Barbara, so people can actually click on them and go directly to them. And thank okay, you so much for talking to us today. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Is there any last thing you'd like to say while we're online together? Uh, yes. If they want to hear some of my lectures in more detail, about these subjects, they could go to YouTube, Barbara Lamb. There has been a lot of those up there. I hope they still are. And I thank all the listeners and viewers for giving time and attention to this very, very important phenomenon. And I wish you all well. Thank you so much, Barbara Lamb, for joining us today. You're welcome.